The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. If you will turn now to 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. We're going to go ahead and look at this section. I read this a little earlier. Um, by way of review, maybe those of you who are visiting today, I've met some visitors, that was great. Or maybe you've missed a couple of weeks for whatever reasons. And also for all of us who have been here, just by way of reminder, because we've covered a lot of material. We're all the way up to chapter 6 now, finishing chapter 6. So we want to continue and remember the continuity of this letter that Paul wrote. It all connects together. Chapter 1 all the way up to chapter 6 is where we are. So by way of reminder, I'm just going to summarize real quick maybe one of the main points that Paul highlighted in each of the first five chapters that we've covered up to this point. Chapter 1, he basically said to the Corinthians, and by the way, this letter that's 16 chapters, he is correcting of the Corinthians' behavior. He's addressing their sin, their sinful thinking, their sinful words, and their sinful actions. And so he's coming across very strong, very uh, pastorally in terms of admonitions, all, very fatherly-like as a, their spiritual mentor. And he is definitely uh, taking sin issues head-on every single chapter. That was the point of this letter. It's a corrective letter. Uh, so he's giving a lot of admonitions how they need to change. And so chapter 1 was stop being divisive. We need to do the same because we're a church. Uh, chapter 2, stop imitating worldly wisdom. And we need to do the same. Chapter 3, quit boasting in people. Boast only in God. Uh, chapter 4, stop criticizing the pastor and your spiritual leaders. That's my favorite chapter. Uh, chapter 5, boycott unrepentant professing Christians who are involved in sin, but don't boycott unbelievers as a general way of life. And then chapter 6, the first 11 verses from last week, it was very simple. Stop suing other Christians in secular courts or don't sue other Christians in secular courts, ever. That was his point. Very simple. And now he's going to make a transition uh, to 12 through 20. And the point there is simply if you're a Christian, you need to or are required by God to honor God with your body and live a sexually pure and moral life. That's the essence and the summary of his command that we're going to look at today. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, I titled the sermon of the day is How to Avoid Immorality. The word immorality is used by the Apostle Paul several times in Corinthians. Uh, he, in chapter 5, chapter 5 and chapter 6, they go together. They are seamless in terms of this argument and the development of his themes. So that's why the English translations of the Bible can be a little misleading because they break it up in chapter 5 and then there's chapter 6 and there's this wall in between and they're totally separated and they're not integrated and there's a lack of continuity. That is not true at all. It's just one long continuous discussion Paul's having. Chapter 5 is totally related to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is totally related and introduces chapter 7, which introduces chapter 8. Uh, and one of these themes that's woven throughout several of these chapters is the word immorality. We talked about when we saw it the first time in Corinthians, that word for immorality is porneia, which where we get the word pornography from. So, and in Paul's day, the word porneia meant any kind of sexual sin. Any practice of sin that happened 
outside the context of marriage between husband and wife. So it could be individual sin, it could be uh, corporate sin, adultery, homosexuality, uh, on and on it goes. But any kind of sexual deviant behavior that happens outside the context of marriage between husband and wife was considered pornea. So it's an umbrella term. And he used it in chapter 5, verse 10. He used it in chapter 5, verse 11. Um, he used it uh, in last week in verses 1 through 11. He talked about specific forms of immorality or sexual immorality. He gave specific examples of it in verse 9. We already looked at that uh, where he s- referred to fornicators. Those are people who have sex, sexual intimacy or sex, before marriage. So that's people living together and indulging in marital rights, sexually speaking, before they're married. That's fornication. Uh, He referred to adulterers. That's at least one party who's married and then they have sex with somebody else who's not their spouse. He referred to the effeminate in verse 9. Those are male uh, homosexuals who are the passive partner in the relationship. And then he referred to specifically homosexuals. That's in a homosexual relationship of men. And that's the... uh, male or the stronger person in that kind of relationship so he, he this is verses 12 through 20 as he's talking about uh sexual purity these are on the heels of just talking about forms of immorality and then also in chapter 5 he referred to incest very specifically so he's definitely talking about uh sexual purity and morality and immorality that's the context and so he has a very specific discussion he wants to address it's a, it's kind of a uh very quick turn in terms of the transition starting at verse 12. He's talking about lawsuits, then all of a sudden, boom, without warning, he goes into this thing on uh, immorality and moral purity. I'm like, wow, where'd that come from? He's talking about prostitutes. and uh, So not much of a warning in terms of the transition, but there is a relation in light of verse 9, talking about moral behavior. So that brings us to uh, verse 12 through 20. And the main topic there is how to avoid immorality or the positive way is how to stay sexually pure in your life as a Christian. Uh, I broke it up into four parts. That's not uh, any kind of divine outline, but it just kind of brings us through the discussion in a logical kind of a way. Uh, big, Just a couple of big picture thoughts here. In 1 Corinthians 12, uh, chapter 6, 12 through 20, Paul isn't being exhaustive or comprehensive He's not going to tell you everything that you want to know or want to hear about sexual morality or immorality, so keep that in mind. We're only going to deal with a passage that is very confined and specific, uh, relevant to what was going on in the Corinthian church. He is addressing a specific issue that was a problem in the Corinthian church. That's his first priority. So that's going to be our priority. We want to see what Paul was saying to those Corinthians. And then from that, we're eavesdropping in. We want to learn from that and then carry that over and apply that to our own life. So this might not answer all of your questions. As a matter of fact, what we share today may create more questions than it answers. But that's okay, and that's actually a good thing. That means you were listening. That means you probably understood what Paul was getting at here. So he's being very narrow, he's being very focused, and he's being very specific because he's a pastor addressing people he knows by name, and he knows they have an issue in their church. What was the issue in their church? Well... He went into this totally pagan, secular, humanistic, idolatrous, sinful, wicked, unsaved city that was a huge, massive metropolis called Corinth in his day, near the city of Athens. And it was a sex-crazed city. Sexual immorality was rampant in all areas and all venues of life. Social life, economic life, personal life, party life, public life, 
political life, religious life, religious life was rampant with sexual immorality in Corinth. In Corinth, in Paul's day, had all kinds of idols, all kinds of temples to false gods. One of the temples was a temple to Aphrodite. You would go and worship there, and in that temple, at one point anyway in Corinth, they were known to have over 1,000 religious prostitutes in the temple of Aphrodite, where you would do your religion, and then you would do your sexual endeavors. They were totally immoral and ungodly and wicked and sinful from a biblical point of view. But that just shows you that's the kind of city that Corinth was. Anything and everything goes. 100% toleration of the most deviant behavior from a biblical point of view, which is not unlike American culture today, which is not unlike American television today, which is not unlike big cities, whether it's San Francisco to Amsterdam or to wherever, all over the world. So this is what Paul was confronting. And he goes in there and he starts preaching the gospel. Some people get saved. And then more and more people get saved. And then he plants a church, a Christian church. And he pastors that church for a year and a half. And then he leaves. A couple of years later he hears, wow, we got a lot of problems. I've got to address those people that I pastored and gave the gospel to. And so what Paul's dealing with is a very new church. Young believers. I'd probably say the majority of these Corinthian believers have been Christians for seven years or less. And if they are adults coming out of this sex-crazed, immoral culture of Corinth, as an adult, they've already established patterns of life that have been ingrained in their behavior and ingrained in their memories and ingrained in their DNA. They get saved, they become Christians, they believe the gospel, and yet they've got these horribly bad habits that they carry over from their previous life into their Christian life, and into the church. And that's what Paul's trying to address. It's like, wow, we've got all kinds of libertarian sexual immorality going on in pockets here and there in the Corinthian church, and I believe it's because they carried it over from their previous life as unsaved people. And so that's why really what Paul's doing in verses 12 through 20, he's giving a theological survey of a biblical view of sex from God's point of view. And he's, he's not really giving a whole lot of details about how to practically implement it or how to practically uh, disengage. But he knows the foundation needs to begin with what they think. They have got to be re-educated about what God thinks about sex. So it's actually very basic. But that's where it, ha- it has got to start. Everybody who becomes a Christian needs to be uh, introduced and given Uh, an overview of what God thinks about sex and sexual purity and how we're supposed to function and the basics of marriage and uh, as we need to be educated in every other area of life. And so that's kind of what this is. This is a theological survey and overview of what a Christian should think about their bodies, about their sexual identity, about their sexual practice, and how it relates to our relationship with the Trinity and also to fellow believers. So that's what we're going to see. And so these four points really are kind of four principles that they can pretty much hang their thoughts on and also use as parameters and boundaries of their life as Christians in terms of their sexual identity and practice. So let's go ahead and look at it. Um, Oh, one more thing before I start. The topic we're talking about 
Paul doesn't, by the way, he used the word sex, if you notice, uh, in verses 12 through 20, if you read through there, the S-E-X word. But we know what he's talking about. He is using euphemisms. One who joins himself to a harlot. One who joins himself. Okay, that's a euphemism. That's saying something couched in good terminology, avoiding being overly explicit and specific, needlessly so, because of the sanctity and the sacredness of the topic at hand, sex. Which is in totally, total contrast to the way the world talks about it. Flippantly, dirty, sarcastically, and on and on it goes. So that's also a practical, practically good lesson for us to keep in mind. You can talk about sex without ever referring to the word. It's actually a beautiful thing. He's going to do the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, by the way. But he does use specific words. He uses the word harlot in verse 15. That's a pretty crass, direct word, harlot. Te porne is the Greek word. Te porne, the the immoral woman. Uh, But anyway, keep those euphemisms in mind as we go through this. Uh, So let's go ahead and look at Paul's principles of how to stay pure. Oh, I know what I was going to say. The second part of what I was going to say was, because of the sensitive nature of this topic, I am fully aware, especially in a a size this bit, where we've got about 200 folks. We've got uh, different ages. People come with different backgrounds and experiences. Some grew up in Christian homes. Some have been saved just recently. Some have been saved a long time. Some maybe not believers at all. Um, But because of the diversity of backgrounds, upbringings, personalities, those kind of things. Um, we bring a lot of different experiences regarding sexual practice and immorality to the table as we're talking about this subject. I am fully aware of that. If, I guess I could kept put it into three basic groups. There are those of you here who are quite naive to the ways and the details of sexuality and sexual practice. And that's a good thing. And you might be maybe on the younger side of the scale in terms of your age. Uh, you're 12 years old. You're four. If you're 12 years old today here, and you're here today, that's okay that you're here. In the Jewish culture in Paul's day, 12 years old, you're on the brink of being a man. You're going to be married when you're 13. You better know a little about sex because you don't have much time here. So that's okay. And it's good to be talking about it here in a safe environment from a biblical point of view with your parents. That's where we need to learn about this. Uh, But there are many of you, no doubt, who are kind of on the naive and the innocent side regarding these matters and these topics. That is okay. You don't need to blush or be ashamed or whatever else as we go through uh, 12 through 20 because this is what God has to say on the topic. He made you, He made every single one of us a sexual being. Sexuality is a part of our very identity and we need to know God's perspective and point of view on it. That is a healthy thing. That is a good thing. And that also is a preparatory thing in terms of preventative and helping us uh, guard the purity in our life. So that's one category, people, those inexperienced and naive to many of these things. Then there are a whole other category of people, maybe of you're actually in the struggle right now. You are battling with some form of sexual immorality or challenge in your life, uh, whether it's uh, in the context of marriage or outside the context of marriage, or maybe it's on a personal level, or maybe it's, uh, some deviant practice and on and on, the possibilities. But that's a reality. So I, I'm fully aware of that. That was true when Paul was talking to the Corinthians too. That's actually why he had to bring this up. He knew that there were Christians in the Corinthian church 
who were struggling with sexuality. And that's why they needed to hear what God had to say about it. And then there's the third category of people who have uh, like a history and a past of experiences related to sexual practice, sexual immorality, uh, some horrible ones uh, that you experienced all the way from, uh, and you have maybe vivid, bad, sad memories and wounds uh, as a result. And so maybe even talking about this subject allows some of that to be resurfaced. Maybe it makes it difficult for you to even address this topic. Uh, I understand that as well. From people being uh, sexually abused or uh, women who have had an abortion or a man who was involved in a girl he was with who had an abortion and that's a, a distant memory or a recent memory. That, that's reality. Um, we're fully aware of that. God knows that more than I do and God knows that about you specifically and he knows me and my past specifically and through his Holy Spirit and his truth uh, he can solve or put salve on the wounds and he can heal. Uh, that is his intent. He loves his children. He loves his people. We can't avoid the topic. That's the exact opposite of what we need to do or dismiss the topic. We need to address it head on as God does in his word. Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Some of that freedom might be just being honest about your past. Some of that freedom might be being honest about where you are right now as you battle with uh, immorality. Some of that freedom might be learning these new things and you never had any experiences in sexuality and it's going to set you free in the future as God paves the way for you for a, a pure life living before Him. So definitely want to say that on a personal level going into this. God is our sufficiency on this topic. So let's go ahead and look at these four points on how to avoid immorality. Point number one is know your purpose. Know your purpose. Live a principled life. And that's verses 12 through 13. Know your purpose. Uh, all things, Paul, Paul says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything, he says in verse 12. This phrase, all things are lawful for me. And the second part of the verse, all things are lawful for me. He repeats it. This is repeated again in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. So commentators think this was a proverb. Proverbs, uh, or they think that maybe this is something that the Corinthians lived by. It was a, a maxim that they threw out there and lived by and they liked to flaunt their freedom in Christ. And some of them were exceeding the boundaries of legitimate freedom in their life. In other words, uh, we don't have all these restrictions that a lot of other religions do that say you need to do this and this and this and this and this and then you'll earn your salvation, whether it has to do with abstaining from certain foods or abstaining from uh, sex at all, because some religions teach that. If you are celibate and abstain from sex, then you can reach a higher plane of spirituality. That's common in Roman Catholicism, Hinduism, and other religions today. That is not true. All these things we do by way of human works doesn't earn any favor with God. We can't earn our salvation. God does the saving. He is the gracious Savior. We can't earn anything. And so all these legalistic laws aren't going to earn any favor with God and aren't going to catapult us to a higher level of spirituality. And so I think the Corinthians actually liked that concept. Oh, we've got freedom in Christ. Therefore, we can do whatever we want. And so that could very well be what Paul is combating here, this little pithy maxim that it's actually true. If you are a Christian, all things are lawful for you. 
with the caveat that all lawful things are lawful for you. All legal things are legal for you. All non-sinful things are okay for you. That's what he means. So it is a legitimate maxim that Christians can live by. And so this is a good principle to apply to the gray areas of life. Or the things we're not quite sure what Scripture says about it. These freedoms that we can uh, engage in. Uh, all things are lawful for me, but that's not uh, the, the whole story. There needs to be balance to this principle of living with freedom in Christ. But not all things are profitable. Not all things are beneficial. You, can, you have freedoms in Christ, but you can't go overboard exercising your freedoms at the detriment of your own self, your own body, your own walk with Christ, or at the detriment of another Christian or person. And so there's the beautiful balance that Paul says. Uh, yeah, all things are lawful that are legal and non-sinful for me like what I can eat. It's not a sin for me to eat a Twinkie. But if you're a you know, a health nut, a crazed, whacked-out health nut, and I'm eating a Twinkie, and you might come over and reprove me, Pastor Cliff, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. How dare you eat a Twinkie? I'm thinking, no, I, I think this is legit. Is It's not good for me to eat formaldehyde and plastic but and sugar, but, man, it tastes good. So that's the principle that Paul's talking about. This, this applies to great areas of life, uh, but there are parameters, and the Corinthians have taken it too far. And, and so his rebuttal to this is, yeah, and it could be that Paul actually said this at one time to the Corinthians, that all things are lawful for me. You don't need to abstain from certain foods to be spiritual. You don't need to be celibate to be spirit, extra spiritual. And they took that, and they uh, confined it and got a lack of balance. We're thinking, oh, all things are uh, lawful. I can do whatever I want. I can have sex with whoever I want. That's basically how they were practicing this. Some of them were. I can have sex with the temple prostitute. I can have sex with anybody outside of marriage. And Paul's saying, no, that is illegitimate. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable or beneficial or healthy or holy or uh, help other people or not all things necessarily honor God. All things are lawful for me. And Paul's including himself. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. That's an important phrase right there to apply to our own life. I will not be mastered by anything. I will not be enslaved to anything. I will not be addicted to anything. There's the practical application. Think about your own life right now. Is there anything that you do or a practice you have in life that you are addicted to? With respect to your passions, whether it is alcohol, whether it is some kind of sexual practice or sexual activity, are you addicted to it? In other words, I can't stop. I can't stop on my own. I just keep doing it over and over again. That's what Paul is referring to. That is, un, that is not profitable. That is detrimental. That is destructive to your spiritual walk and life. And it needs to stop. And Paul's principle by which he lived by was, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. I'm not going to be addicted. I'm not going to allow myself to be addicted to anything, whether it's pornography or sex or um, like I said, anything having to do with food or maybe it's uh, pilfering, you name it. If it's an addiction, it needs to be honestly identified, exposed, and then we've got to deal with it. And Paul's going to tell us in chapter 7 of how to deal with that very practically. But right now, he's just kind of trying to diagnose and expose. If you're addicted to anything and it's become this uh, all-consuming behavior, it is not good. Uh, then he goes on in verse 13. He says, kind of another little proverb, food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, which is true. And basically, he's trying to, he's probably echoing some of the thinking of the Corinthians that, um, well, eating is a simply biological necessity. It's just a basic appetite of all humanity. 
and we need to satisfy the appetite. And apparently they applied this to sex. Well, sex is just a basic natural appetite, and that needs to be satisfied just like we satisfied uh, hunger with food. And so the idea is we can just have sex whenever and with ever whom we desire. And Paul says, no. That is an illegitimate analogy. Those two realities, they are not parallel. You are thinking wrong. The foundation of that thinking is wrong. It is unbiblical. I need to correct that view. And one of the problems in Corinthian culture had to do with Greek thinking. This is true of some religions today, that the Greeks that were dominant in Paul's day, their worldview about humanity was messed up. It was weird. It was false. It had practical implications. One thing that the Greeks thought, they had a dualistic view of the world and humanity. They thought, for the most part, the physical body was worthless or even evil. And that which is invisible was to be esteemed and praised, like the mind and the intellect and the spirit. So mind, spirit, intellect, good, physical body, worthless, bad, going to die anyway. As a matter of fact, one of the goals of this life is to escape from this body and then go into the other world where it's just an ethereal, spiritual mass of nothingness and non-physicalness. And that was heaven or even God. So that was the way the Greeks thought. That was the way many of the Corinthians thought. And so this was a worldview that crept into the church probably with some of these Corinthian Christians who demeaned the body, saying that the body, well, the body isn't as important as the soul. The body isn't as important as the spirit. After all, when I got saved, God only saved my soul. He didn't save my body. Look at it. And so they just separated the body as totally worthless, doesn't matter what you do to the body. It doesn't matter who you have sex with. These physical things. This is very similar to Hugh Hefner, who founded Playboy, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And actually has been used by the devil to proliferate sexual immorality in America and the world like no other that we have ever known. And in an interview one time that I did not hear, but I heard from somebody else, uh, they asked him his worldview. Hugh Hefner, and he basically said, well, humans, they're just animals. We're just animals like any other animals. And we don't get judgmental about animals procreating or having sex, so we shouldn't be uh, judging humans for who they have sex with and how often and when. That's his view. His worldview, he believes in evolution. We're just the byproduct and the end result of animal development and progression. And that the sex act is nothing but a physical, physiological, physical, uh, non-spiritual act that is natural and everybody does it and everybody should be doing it anyway. And there are no moral implications to it whatsoever. There are no spiritual implications to it whatsoever. That's what he believes. That is the worldview of the unsaved world for the most part. And so that what, that's what Paul is combating here. You've got a wrong view about the human body, uh, about sexual practice. Uh, and so he wants to change their view, and he says, yet the body is not for immorality. You are wrong, but rather your physical body right now, it is for the Lord. It belongs to God. It belongs to Jesus. It belongs to the Father. It belongs to the Holy Spirit. By the way, God brings in every member of the Trinity in this discussion, reminding the Christian, you live before the triune God of the universe who owns everything about you, including your body and your bodily practices, including your morality. And so he refers to God the Father in verse 13 in the middle of the verse there. God. 
then he says your body isn't for immorality if you're a Christian, but rather it is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. That phrase, your body is for the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. It, he owns it. He wants to use you and your body. So that's what I meant by know your purpose. What is your purpose? Your purpose is to be owned by God, to serve God. And the, the way you serve God and the vehicle by which you do it is your body. It's my body. We can't serve God apart from using our body. So our body is to be precious, hallowed, sacred to God. So the body matters. And he begins this discussion to really debunk Greek dualism. Where they said, mm, the body doesn't matter. No, it does. And then he's going to elevate that and escalate that concept in the next verse, which is the next point. And that's number two. After knowing your purpose, living a principled life, living by the principles that he has just shared in verses 12 and 13, these biblical principles need to guide our life, direct our life, dictate our life. We need to live by principle. If you don't live by convictions and biblical principles, then you're just going to be awash in an amass of, of unprincipled living that will take you here, there, and everywhere and down into the gutter. People who don't live by biblical principles or they just don't live a principled life. It's a very dangerous lifestyle. So know your purpose. You belong to God. Your body matters. We need to live by biblical principles. Number two is remember the promise. As you're trying to avoid immorality, remember the promise. What is that? Well, prepare for the future. Live in light of the future, specifically about your body. That's verse 14. Speaking of the body, when he says, no, the body does matter. Uh, sex isn't just an appetite to be fulfilled at any given moment, like you're eating potato chips. Sex is not just an appetite. Actually, sex is a gift from God. It's a stewardship from God, not to be satisfied, but to be cared for, nurtured, protected and used, get this, to bless other people, your spouse. So it's not just a guttural, basal appetite that the world would have us believe. Oh, everybody's doing it. It's just practice. It's just normal behavior. No, it's not. And sex, by the way, is not just, it's not primarily a physical act from a biblical point of view. That's what the world doesn't get. That's what some Christians don't get. When you have a sexual encounter with another person, it's not the, the physical encounter that's dominant. It is the personal encounter that is dominant and the spiritual encounter that goes. There's a supernatural, invisible, spiritual transaction when two people engage in sexuality that runs deep and really remains forever in this life, in our minds and in our memories. So it's, it's, it's supra-physical. So point number two, remember the promise, prepare for the future. Now he's going to get a little more specific about this body. Uh, yeah, these, don't listen to these Greeks. Don't listen to these pagans about their worldview. Uh, pag pagans, unbelievers, and, and the Greeks in particular had weird and warped views about the afterlife. All the way from you go into non-existence or you come back reincarnated or you become part of a god or you, and the, probably one of the most popular ones is you leave this physical body and you enter an, an immaterial, non-physical world that is a higher plane of living and that's what we should all aspire for. The goal is to get out of the, the shell of this shackled presence that our spirit is imprisoned in in this life. We want to get out of this evil body. And so that's verse 14 and Paul's saying, no, that, that's a wrong view of the afterlife. The biblical view of the afterlife is physical resurrection, is being glorified like Jesus Christ is now in his body. That's the ultimate goal 
of salvation, redemption, and, and uh, God's redeeming purposes in the life of, of people is bodily resurrection. So salvation, yes, it is salvation of the soul. It is forgiveness of sin. But salvation is not complete without the resurrection of the body, the glorification of the physical body. That's what Romans 8 is all about. God isn't done redeeming us yet. God isn't done saving us yet. God isn't done with us because He still is going to redeem or save the body. He's going to glorify every one of our physical bodies. So in heaven, someday, we will have not just a saved, sinless soul. We will also have a resurrected, glorified physical body that we will live in for all eternity that is after the pattern of Jesus Christ's glorified, resurrected body. That's what God wants. That is God's plan. That's where He is headed. So your physical body has everything to do with being a Christian in this life and even more so in the next life because you will serve Jesus Christ and the Trinity for all eternity in your literally physical body. The resurrection body will be physical. It will have bones. It will have flesh and bones because that's what Jesus said in Luke 24. It probably won't have blood according to other passages, but it will be physical. And there will be a resemblance to this life in terms of what your physical resurrection body looks like, but it will be perfected in heaven. It will be better. Don't be worried. It will be better than the one in this life. It will be perfect. It will be glorious. It will be awesome. And not for uh, self-gratification, but in service to others and service mostly to Jesus Christ. And so he wants the Corinthians to think about the reality. Your salvation isn't even complete yet because God still has to redeem your physical body. So honor God now in your physical body because it belongs to him. And he's going to redeem that physical body and you're going to be in it forever. And by the way, you won't be engaging in sex with other people when you get into heaven. Sex with other people is of this life. It's a temporary thing. We'll see that in 1 Corinthians 7. So he's correcting their view by talking about resurrection. Remember the promise Christ made to you Verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, but will also raise us Christians up through his power. And we're going to be given a, a resurrection, glorious body made after the pattern of Christ's amazing, glorious resurrection body. Jesus lives in an, a glorious physical resurrection body now, and he will for all eternity. Yet he remains omniscient and he remains omnipresent. I don't understand how that works. Jesus is in a literal physical body, yet he is omnipresent. And shares all the attributes of God. Jesus is in a physical resurrected body now. But before he was born of Mary, he did not have a body. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past had no body. God is spirit. But Jesus does now. Took on that human body for all eternity. It's, a, it's amazing. It's mind-boggling, really. So in light of the fact that God cares about our body, He's going to redeem our body. It's part of who we are and our salvation. We can't serve Him apart from a body. We need to start honoring Him with our physical body now and apply it directly to how you conduct yourself in terms of your moral purity every day of your life and with every interaction that you have and everything that you do. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us through His power. Let's go on to point number three. After knowing your purpose, living a principled life, and after remembering the promise of your future resurrection body. By the way, one more footnote. The, I, the, the concept of a resurrection, that people will receive a resurrection body in the next life, is uniquely and distinctively biblical. That came from the Bible. So if you ever hear it anywhere else, in a quasi-Christian religion, or a New Age pagan religion, and they're talking about physical resurrection, 
or you see it in some Hollywood movie, the resurrection, just remember, they got that from the Bible. There was no concept ever among humanity apart from it being revealed by God and His prophets through Scripture, the reality of resurrection in the afterlife. It is strictly, wholly, distinctly, and only biblical and only Christian and Jewish in the Old Testament. That is significant. That's why when Paul was on Mars Hill at Acts 17 and he's talking to the Greeks and he's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they thought they were like, what are you talking about? This is weird. We've never heard this. We want to hear more. This is seed picking. This is uh, mumbo jumbo. Where'd you get this? Where were you educated? No one talks about like that. No one thinks like this in Acts 17. So resurrection, it is absolutely distinct and unique. If there's another religion that believes in bodily resurrection, they stole it from the Bible. Uh, Number three. Uh, Heed the prohibition. What's that? Run from temptation. Run from temptation. It's better to run from temptation than run from the fact that you're already engaged in the sin. James said, boy, once you're engaged in the sin, it's kind of too late. So that's why you've got to run from the temptation or looking in to see, ooh, a temptation could be coming, I'm out of here. Oh, so that's verses 15 through 18. Um, that's where he gives another command. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Literally, the Greek is kind of interesting there. He's, talking about the, he's not talking about the corporate body of Christ here. He literally saying, this is what it literally says. Did you not know that you are a body part of Jesus or of Christ? He's talking individually. You, you are like a limb that belongs to Jesus. You have been, when you got saved, you were unified with Christ spiritually and supernaturally, but really. And then you became a body part. You became an appendage. You became an, a bodily organ of Jesus himself. Individually. So I am a pinky of Jesus. In other words, wherever Jesus goes, I am there. I am his pinky. You might be something else, his earlobe or whatever. Wherever Jesus goes, you are, if you're a Christian, wherever Jesus goes, you are there. You can't escape it. It's a supernatural, supernatural transaction that God did when you became a Christian. And you became a body part of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning of verse 15. So then he said, shall I then take away the members of Christ... Shall I take Jesus' body parts, me being his thumb or earlobe, and then, by the way, when you're a Christian, everywhere Jesus goes, you go, because you're supernaturally somehow a part of his body. But the converse is also true. Everywhere you go, you take Jesus with you. I go to the bar, and I'm drinking. I'm, I'm bringing Jesus with me. Jesus, do you drink? You go to... Uh, some immoral place. You go to a, a disgusting rated R, PG-13, no, this day, these days, you go to a disgusting rated G movie uh, in the movie theater on a massive, huge screen in 3D, psycho color, whatever, phonic sound and sights and whatever, and then there's immorality going on. You're, you're taking Jesus with you. Uh, that's what he's arguing here. Because of this supernatural union you really do have with Jesus Christ himself. You are inseparable from him. So wherever you go, you're taking Jesus with you. Then why in the world, if you are a body part of Jesus, why would you make them members of a harlot? May it never be. God forbid, don't do that. Think about where you're going. Think about what you're doing. Think about who you're talking to. And if you are a Christian, you are taking Jesus with you and exposing him to that dirty deed. You go and you watch pornography, have a seat, Jesus, next to me, and 
Boom. That's really what we're doing. We've got to be reminded of that reality that Paul's talking about. Verse 16, or do you not know that the one who joins himself, by the way, that is a euphemism for the word coitus, coitus, uh, when the male enters the female. That's literally what that is talking about. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a harlot is one body with her? So there is some kind of a spiritual supernatural transaction that happens when a man and a woman have sexual intimacy with one another. And it's rooted in what in God's creation because that's the end of verse 16 where he quotes from Genesis, the two shall become one flesh. When they have sex, man and woman, they become one. Not just physically, but in every way conceivable at a very personal, intimate level. It's, it's the deepest kind of union you can have with another person is sexual intimacy with them. So it's not just physical. It's not superficial. It is deep. It is personal. It is lasting. It is spiritual. It is emotional. Verse 17, but the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. When you became a Christian, you were joined to Jesus Christ. You are now inseparable from him. He goes with you wherever you go. As a result, flee immorality because you don't want to be taking Jesus with you when you're doing your dirty deeds. So don't do that. Flee it. Stay away from it. Put up boundaries. Hold, get accountability. Every other sin that a person commits is outside of the body, whether it's stealing or whatever. Sexual sin is a unique kind of sin. Sexual sin is a different kind of sin. It's a deep sin. It's a personal sin. That's what he's saying here. Every other sin is a, a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man commits, get this, not, he doesn't commit sin with his body. He commits, if he's a Christian, he commits sin against his own body. So when you commit an act of sexual immorality with another person, you're actually not just sinning against that person, you're also sinning against your own body. That's true of believers and unbelievers. That is destructive. It is damaging. As a result, Christian, flee from it. Run away from it. Two great examples in the Old Testament of where one godly man did not flee when he saw the temptation and another godly man who did flee. Look at Genesis 39 real quick. I did say one godly man did not flee sexual immorality. That's what I said. A godly man is David. David is in heaven. King David loved God. He was a man after God's own heart. He was an exemplary man of God and, and passion and a ruler and king of Israel. And yet he stumbled into all kinds of sexual sin. We know he married at least nine different women. That was adulterous. That was polygamous. That deserved the death penalty. Yet he didn't get the death penalty that he deserved under the Mosaic Law. Had nine, nine women in his life at least. And then one more at the end of his life. And then that sin with Bathsheba where he's out during the time of war, and he's out on the top of his palace, and he, it says he got out of his bed, and it was very late at night. It was obviously dark when everybody else was sleeping, except for ladies who take baths on their roof. He goes out on the palace table, and, uh, out on the balcony, and looking around, and he sees a woman taking a bath, and it says that she was beautiful, meaning David thought she was. He he began to lust after her. He did not resist the temptation. Oh, whoa! Somebody's taking a bath over there. I better go back inside. That would have been what it meant to flee. And then call your carpenters in the palace and say, okay, can you uh, put some uh, two-by-fours over that door? I don't want to go out that door anymore. Let's make the uh, window on the other side of the palace. So he didn't flee. He gave in to that temptation. And then he ends up basically having people bring Bathsheba. She's a married woman. Bring her into the palace. says he went into Bathsheba. She became pregnant. Uh, and then he found out uh, when she fa he found out she became pregnant, he tried to kill her husband, Uriah. And he did, basically. Committed adultery, committed murder, 
lied about it for a year, then committed horrible hypocrisy as he's talking to Nathan, his personal assistant and prophet. And then got exposed, and then he confessed, and then he was broken, and he wrote two psalms asking God for forgiveness and how it devastated his life and his family. But he didn't resist the temptation. Look at Genesis 39. This godly man, at least in this instance, did flee the temptation. He saw it coming. I'm out of here. This was Joseph, who was basically beat up by his brothers when he was 17. And then he was picked up by a caravan going by, and then he sold into slavery in Egypt. And that's where the story picks up. This is a young man. He's a teenager. By the way, uh, he could be anywhere between uh, you know, 17 and maybe he's in his 20s. And so he is fully ripe in terms of his sexuality, sexual desire. If he didn't have the gift of singleness, sexuality would be a, a huge temptation to Joseph at this time in his life. And, uh, and now Joseph, starting at verse 1, had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him. So Potiphar was a man in charge in Egypt, an influential man probably a rich man, had a lot of power, had a lot of influence. His name was Potiphar. He was married. He bought Joseph. He liked Joseph. Joseph was a good, faithful slave who worked with integrity and worked hard. And Potiphar rewarded him for his hard work. Verse 2, And the Lord, or Yahweh, was with Joseph. So Joseph became a successful man, even as a slave. He was in the house of his master, Potiphar, the Egyptian. Verse 3, Now his master saw that Yahweh was with him. So Potiphar probably didn't know God personally, but he knew God was doing amazing things. God's hand of blessing is on this Joseph guy. So I better take note of that, and I better bless him too. Verse 3, Now his master saw that Yahweh was with Joseph and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer of his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Wow, Potiphar came to trust Joseph like no other. He just entrusted everything in his life to Joseph, the slave. Verse 5, and it came about that from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, so Potiphar made Joseph the overseer of his entire house and over everything that he owned. Yahweh blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. Verse 6, so he left everything he owned to Joseph's charge. And with him, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good-looking studly dude. That's what that means. That's the original translation. He was a handsome man in form, I mean bodily, just manly, masculine, beautiful appearance, very attractive. God blessed him that way. In addition to this amazing high level of integrity that he had and his work ethic like no other. This is one quality man that God has his hand on. Verse 7, And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. So Potiphar's wife notices Joseph around the house. He's in charge. He is handsome. He is attractive. And so Joseph, uh, Potiphar's wife starts checking Joseph out. She's, oh wow, look at our new slave. He's kind of good looking. Oh, he's a hunk. He seems like a nice guy. Oh, he's a hard worker. Ooh, he's home all the time. My husband's busy and he's never around. I need my needs met. Who knows what's going on in her mind. Came about these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. Sleep with me. I want to commit adultery with you behind the back of my husband. That's what she said. That's the direct approach. How crass is that? Verse 8, 
But Joseph refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here, my master. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all the owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, his wife, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Notice he doesn't say sin against Potiphar. It would have been a sin against her husband. But first, it would be a sin against God. That is adultery. I'm not going to do it. She was not convicted one iota. Verse 10, and it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day. See, she wouldn't relent. She kept pursuing him and pursuing him and asking and asking day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household was there inside and she caught him by his... She grabbed him. She physically accosted him. Grabbed, she was going to rape him. Rape usually goes the other way. The man rapes the woman. Here, she's trying to sexually rape Joseph. Caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled. He, he just ripped away and ran. And she literally ripped the clothes off his back. And she's standing there with his clothes, his jacket or whatever he was wearing. But he took action. He fled the temptation. He left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that, that he had left his garment in her hand, and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I screamed. So she is crying rape. She's a liar. And Joseph got in trouble for that. And Joseph never complained to God about that. Joseph did the right thing. He fled temptation. Number three, heed the prohibition. Flee temptation. When you see it, or even before you see it, or even when you see the signs of it, or or when you know from past experience, boy, if I go there, this is going to happen. I probably shouldn't go there. Run. That's just practical advice. And we need to keep running from immorality wherever we see it. It's on the television, turn it off. It's at the movie theater, don't go there. If it's in on the computer, boy, you got you got problems. I mean, in, in Paul's day and in biblical times, all those Proverbs, Proverbs 5 through 9, are exhortations and commands to young men to stay away from the the adulterous woman don't go to the corner where she lives don't go outside don't go by her house don't go near her don't leave the house and go by her don't that's how it was for centuries and centuries don't go there you had to uh, work at it you had to get out of the house and escape and make up excuses and lies and deceive people and make ex grandiose plans of how to pull off your deception to engage in the sexual immorality and go there to do it today we are in trouble because it's at your fingertips now it's on your keyboard in your home the adulteress is in your home uh, in terms of the accessibility which it's all the more challenging for us flee how do i flee when it's on my keyboard and my television in my videos that's a unique challenge that we have but there are principles from this that we can apply to help and we're going to get into that in chapter seven uh, flee immorality every other sin a man commits is outside the body this one is against his own body Let's go on to point number four. Flee after flee. Use your power. Well, it's not really your power. It's not my power. It's power that God has given us. Resident power. God gave us of his Holy Spirit. When God said, the moment you became a Christian, God gave you a wedding gift. Because you got married to Jesus when you became a Christian. 
And the wedding gift that He gave you, the most precious one, is He gave you of His Spirit. He put the Spirit of God inside of you to live in you. If you are a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you right now. Isn't that amazing? We just need to continually be reminded of that. The same Holy Spirit who is part of the triune God. The same Holy Spirit who, according to Genesis 1-2, helped create the universe out of nothing. That is the same Spirit that lives in you and me. The same Holy Spirit that the book of Romans says raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, lives in me. So we do have power. It's not our own power. It's God's power. It's delegated power. We can be good stewards of that power. We can be bad stewards of that power. We can neglect that power. We can snuff that power. We can compromise and circumvent that power by our own stupid, sinful, compromising actions. Or we can tap into that power, first recognizing that it is there. I can't overcome this. I can't overcome this. I can't overcome this. Well, actually, you can and I can't. We're just keep doing the wrong strategy over and over and over again. Or we're hiding something and we're not becoming vulnerable or accountable. We're not seeking the proper help. We're not doing the right thing. We can. It's that resident power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us that can help us in this area of our life if we struggle with forms of sexual sin. Uh, verse 19 and following. Or do you not know? Do you not know? So he's reminding the Corinthians, boy, I thought I told you this when I pastored you for a year and a half. I thought this was basic when you became a Christian. In basic membership classes. And when you got baptized. The Spirit of God lives in you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Because the the Holy Spirit lives in you, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He resides in you. A temple all throughout history was where the presence of God resided and dwelt and lived. So first it was the tabernacle made out of cloth where the presence of God would go inside that tabernacle, that tent. Literally, God's presence would be there. And if you went in there illegitimately, you'd be struck dead. Then they turned it into a permanent temple made out of stone in the days of Solomon. And literally, the presence of God came and uh, went inside and lived and dwelt inside that temple, the presence of God. And then the presence of God came down like no other time in history in the presence of Jesus Christ, the God-man. God tabernacled in a human body on earth, says John chapter 1. In His fullness like never before. And then He went back into heaven, and that, but He didn't leave us as orphans. He sent His Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to tabernacle inside of us. And then someday we will literally be in the very presence of Almighty God in the future in heaven. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You can't do whatever you want with your body. You can't kiss whoever you want. You can't have premarital sex with whoever you want. You can't use your body any way you want to because your body is not your own. My body is not my own. It's God's body. He owns it. It's His property. If you misuse your body, you are trespassing. You're trespassing against the Trinity. You're trespassing against the person you're having illegitimate sex with. And you're also trespassing against the Holy Spirit who lives in you. You're trespassing against your own body. And I would be as well. Your body is not your own. Your life is not your own. You are not your own. Verse 20, for you've been bought with a price. You've been bought, Christian, you've been bought with a price. You were purchased. And what were, we, what were we bought with? We were bought with and purchased with the blood of Christ, weren't we? His death and resurrection on our behalf, He's the one who bought us at salvation. He gave His life for us. He, we were slaves of sin. He bought us. He owns us. Jesus owns you, Christian. Jesus owns me. You are not your own. 
As a matter of fact, it's God owns you by virtue of creation. God owns me by virtue of creation. God owns every human body. That's why abortion is wrong. Every conception that ever happens is a gift and an act from God. And every baby is literally owned by God because he is the creator. That's what scripture teaches. So your body belongs to God by virtue of creation. Then if you're a Christian, your body is also belongs to God by virtue of salvation, by the blood of Christ. And also your body is not your own because it belongs to the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. It is his temple. So it's the triune God owns you, Christian, and owns me. My life is not my own. That's one of the main arguments for pro-abortionists. I can, I can kill the fetus in me It's because it's my body. They're talking, no, it's not your body. The fetus in your womb is not an appendage of your body. The fetus in your womb is a 100% independent human being totally separate from you. Made in God's image with an entirely different blood system of its own. Made in God's image. He owns that little baby. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore, Christian, glorify God in your body and all that you do, everywhere you go, everything you say, everything you read, everything you look at. And uh, we could go on and on about how to practically help us with these things, but uh, just a couple of summary points. And then we're going to, like I said, in 1 Corinthians 7, he gets into more specific examples in terms of strategy. So we'll wait till then. If you've got questions, I guarantee he's going to answer a lot of those in chapter 7. We'll get there after Easter. But here's some summary points. Really simple. Christian, don't have sex until you are married. Christian, don't don't live together before you get married. I know it's common practice in our culture and our world. That's not God's desire. Wait till you get married. Um, don't look at porn. Because basically if you do, you're doing what Paul said, don't do here with a prostitute. And we could say, well, guys, males usually struggle more with pornography than females, but usually it's females they're looking at. So females are involved in this horrible sin. So everyone's susceptible. Um, and then don't let sensuality into your house. See, sometimes we just want to talk about the graphic porn that's so bad and horrific. Yet we'll allow subtle compromises of sensuality into our home in the form of an entertaining video or TV show. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a female. I don't struggle with that, with the low-cut dress. Well, I do. I've heard many times from men. And it's a subtle little compromise. It's going down the slippery slope. And ladies need to be sensitive to that about men, especially their men, their boys, their husbands. So be sensitive and don't let little compromises of small acts of sensuality invade your home and don't tolerate it elsewhere even outside your home where you have jurisdiction because it will lead to the greater compromises of sexual sin and again we are 100 percent totally dependent upon god's help in this aren't we and fellow believers which is what we're going to be talking about after easter and uh, we'll, we'll trust god let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the lord in prayer, Father, we thank you for our time together. Again, thank you for Scripture. Just amazing that this was written 2,000 years ago. And yet, once again, the Apostle Paul is talking about something that is front and center 
of relevance in our own life, in our culture, in our homes, and in our personal life, in our very makeup as sexual beings made in your image. God, we need your help. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower us. Thank you for the truth of your word that sets us free. And thank you for the help of other believers who can hold us accountable. And that's that's going to be key, God, to living a life that's pure, that pleases you. And in the meantime, God, protect us, surround us, guide us, direct us, convict us. And thank you for the forgiveness of sin we have in Jesus Christ, our precious Lord. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.